Hello and welcome to the latest in, uh, latest installation of the Death Labs podcast. We talk about all things threat research and threat detection. Really happy to be joined today by Anton Trevakin, uh from Google. Uh, and he's got a lot of great insights and, uh, you know, very well known in the industry. So I will let you introduce yourself, uh, you know, what you've, what you've done and, and how you've gotten to where you are and what you're doing for Google Cloud. Perfect. Sure. So happy to start there. So funny enough, uh, I never joined Google. I was acquired in, right? I joined uh, a small startup called Chronicle, which uh, was uh, kind of a love from first sight. I was an analyst at Gartner for almost eight years. And then uh, I suspected at some point I would see a startup that I would fall in love with. Uh, it, it wasn't happening for a while. And then suddenly I met the Chronicle team and then, and then I really wanted to be on the other side of the table. So Chronicle was acquired by Google Cloud. And uh, right now I work for Google Cloud Office of the CISO when I don't just deal with security operations, but with many other topics, cloud security in recent months, um, the subject of securing AI came up quite a few times. So there are many fun topics uh, that go beyond my original area of security operations. Good, good, excellent. So, um, you know, it was like, what are the interesting differences, right? You know, you spend a long time as an analyst, right, uh, with, with Gartner. And I think that's where we first met. Now working on the other side of the table, uh, you know, how do, how does that look? How does that work for you career-wise? Well, uh, I love Google. I think Google is the company that can change the world and has changed the world. And I also think that Google can change the world of security specifically. So I'm quite excited to be here. And uh, to me, this is the way to actually change things. Because ultimately, when I was an analyst, some of my colleagues basically thought that if they join Gartner and if they write a paper that says, hey, world, you should do X, and X is the right thing to do, the whole world says, oh, wow, they say do X, we're going to do X, and then the change happens. Uh, I had to break it to them. It, it's not how things work. Usually, there's a lot of building and arguing and impressing people and evangelizing and then building more. So ultimately to change the world, you have to build things and you have to make sure these things are used and you have to make sure these things are better enough in some significant ways. For example, just as Chronicle is. So to me, Google is the exciting place to try to change the world of security. So and kind of pivoting from that point, right? You know, one way of saying the need to change the world is that there are limitations with what we're doing today right? Or, or, or yesterday. So, you know, there's a lot of tools out there that do threat detection, help with the incident response. You know, SIMs have been a thing for over a decade. You know, what are the limitations there? Why start there in terms of changing the world? Well, SIMs, to, to, to slightly correct the record, have been a thing for almost a quarter of a century at this point. We are talking about the maybe not mid 90s, but kind of late 90s. So it's interesting how a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I was finishing the blog, uh, 20 years of SIM, because personally I celebrated 20 years of being involved with SIM. Uh, still, the scary part is um, I was looking at some slide deck somebody put together about challenges in SOC. And I looked at the slide as just as I'm looking at it now. And I, and I realized, wait a second. The slide that you put together from talking to clients, I recognize it. It's the slide I would have put together when I joined my first SIM vendor in 2002. So I had this major brain explosion. Some of the challenges that today's security operations teams, today's SOCs face, are very much the challenges the SOCs that adopted the very first SIM products in the early 2000s faced. And to me, this was scary. Like, why, why, is, why are there people complaining about false positives, being unable to store all the data, taking too long to investigate alerts, struggling to build effective detections, and, of course, that teams are, don't have enough skilled engineers? Like, that's very normal. If you time machine to 2002, you'd see mostly the same things. I mean, you talk about IDS and firewalls and the technologies that were quite exciting by 2002 standards. But ultimately, the story would be the same. And to me, this means that some things that are broken have been broken for 20 years. And that means a bigger change is needed. It's not just, can I push my team harder? Can I build a slightly better product? Can I 
make my search faster? Can I write rules slightly better? Ultimately, we did all that. And we are roughly, roughly where we were. And to me, that is scary. Mm -hmm. And that's not where I want to be. And of course, there are new problems because while uh, my first SIM vendor, which I worked for, uh, was probably quite expensive. But at the time, if people had to pay hundreds of thousands for a SIM, they were shocked. Today, a couple of SIM vendors uh, that should remain nameless have clients that, that has given them an eight-digit amounts of money. So I'm talking about in excess of $10 million. And that's a lot of money. And why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> why are people paying tens of millions for SIMs sometimes? It shouldn't be like this. Ultimately, the volume of logs that some people pay for is not value. If I send double the logs into my SIM and then I pay double to a vendor, I don't get double the value. Like, I'm the old SIM hand. I can tell you right away. If you double the collection, you're not doubling the value. So something is quite broken in the industry. And it, yes, there are inherent challenges. Detection is hard. Threat actors, guess what? They don't want to be detected. What a shocker. Environments are more messy now. There is, I, I often joke that it's a layered cake from, at some companies, from mainframes to containers and to, you know, LLMs, <laughs> generative AI, uh, SaaS services. So to me, the, the layered cake from the 1970 tech to 2020s tech is scary and hard to secure. So there are challenges that are new, but also there are challenges that are still there from the days when SIM was born. And that to me is more frustrating. We need to change something. No, uh, I agree. I, just as you're talking, I was just remembering is, is at one point I was just teaching a class and there's an exercise in email encryption and using GPG and the interface. And I was, I was looking at academic literature that was dated and like the interfaces, I realized the interfaces were all the same. There's been no real development of email security or email encryption in 20 years. And we can go through lots of technologies Ransomware, I, I, you know, it's not one of the topics we talk about, is essentially a data recovery exercise. But your data recovery tool of backup tapes is pretty much the same as it was 20 years ago. So, like, critical elements uh, of, of our stack are more or less the same. I mean, backup tapes is more capacity, a little faster, but it's still magnetic. But there are cloud backups as well. So, I think tape is a little, uh, I mean, I don't think it's going to die, but I think it, it's probably less common to backup on tape. Still, you're right. I mean, ultimately, your point is the yeah. same. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, now, yeah, they, it's the cloud resources are easy, right? Backing up and GCP resources are great. It's the on prem stuff that's still miserable. So, um, uh, you know, why do, uh, do our processes of threat detection and response need to change? I mean, you, you, you talk about it not really working, but, you know, what needs to, to improve there to get to the world of, of better rules, better parsing, and, and ultimately to anomaly detection, something that we've also been talking about for over 25 years, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, forget that. I think my first introduction into intrusion detection was 97, give or take, where anomaly detection was talked about. And, and really, the best anomaly detection is, is a good graph that says there's a spike that doesn't belong there. Um, you know, wh where do we get to something where you can do that more programmatically and less of that looks funny? Well, hopefully we are not just saying, here's the peak, because a lot in a lot of cases, the peaks are quite legitimate or they're from anomalous business activities, not anomalous threat activities. And I would say that today we have pushed a lot of kind of brain capacity or brain power of people into doing this better. But ultimately, in some cases, we are roughly where we were. Sure, we can ML stuff. Uh, we can ML stuff in many ways. We can, we can use various other methods. We have dramatically superior threat intel today compared to the late 90s, early 2000s. So um, we are not just talking about um, Sandstorm Center, probably started 20 years ago, and a few other public sources of intel. There are way better intel operations, and I'm not just talking about Mandiant, of course, uh, about others, where we may know more about threat actors and we can detect better. But some of the things, uh, challenges with anomaly detection, whether you call it anomaly IDS circa 90s or Yuba circa 2010s, uh, you still have some of the same challenges. Wow, this thing is anomalous. Okay, uh, what does it mean? What should I do? 
uh, is this bad or is this just anomalous? Like these challenges probably bothered, I don't know, Dr. Rebecca Bass in the 80s when she was writing the first anomaly detection paper, right? And then today we're like, yeah, I don't know, this alert that my Yuba tool gave me, is this really bad or is this just uh, an un unusual application access, which is a business process that runs one, twice a year. Uh, I remember during the Gartner days, somebody fielded a user behavior analytics tool and they trained it over a month of data. Guess what happens at the end of the quarter? Different business activities. Guess what the tool did? Lit up like a Christmas tree. So that type of stuff is still very much, hey, look, here's a spike and we should do better. I think, hey, look, there's a spike shouldn't be the state of the art in 2020s. No, no, I absolutely agree, right? You know, it, it, ergo, the, the the teeing up the the ball to hit out of the park, right, uh, is, you know, in small organizations, you can ask people questions, right? The larger organizations, you can't, you, you can't send your sock on wild goose chases because there's just too much to do. Um, and there's always this focus of can't have any false positives, um, so like I said, that is in, it, in its own right business disruption, uh, certainly at the scale of the enterprise. Yeah. So wasn't there a recent uh, case when false positives were spotted? Um, I was reading this uh, literally a couple of days, I think, in a science newsletter where even the recent supply chain breach, somebody did some detection and uh, the detection alerts. I'm, I'm, I don't recall the details, but the point is what was that they submitted something very malicious, which produced signals, hey, that's malicious. And they thought, that must be a false positive. It can't possibly be real, but it was real. And that story, you know, I remember the classic stories from the mid 2010s when this was the case. Somebody, some detection control brought up a real alert and people thought, yeah, it very often falses. So it's probably false as well. But the reality is, yes, they really were that old. So kind of curious one. Yeah, I, I don't remember it, but I know that's, you know, it, it's various ways I drill that home with my team is not everything is a false positive. It might be a legitimate detection, just no business impact, which is a different thing. Uh, be, you know, is that once you reduce your sock work to being a human grep filter, you know, you close people's minds to go look deeper, right? Because we're creatures of habit. Muscle memory sits in. Oh, I've seen this alert again, 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 again. And you just... Don't miss the data elements that say, oh, wait, this is real this time. And I'm going to guess the, 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 the mid-10s you're talking about is, you know, one of those is the target breach, right? Of yes, IDS target breach is that. exactly that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, you, you read my mind. You know, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, the, mindless, the mindless closing of tickets, right? Uh, you know, or, you know, I guess to paraphrase a different book title, the closing of the sock analyst's mind. You know, of just here, <laughs> alert, close a ticket. You know, it's all it's all false false positives until it's not, which is sadly probably what a lot of MDR vendors do is just do that same process at scale where you're paying them to do the QA of the uh, of their own alerts, but they're not really doing QA. They're just closing things that are that are allowed. Um, that, that, that's an extra depressing take, but uh, I think that uh, I recall a story from my Gartner days when we started doing the research in the operations of managed security services, and we were interviewing mm -hmm. some clients, and uh, there was one particular, I'll, I'll change enough details so it's not a violation of any NDA, but somebody said, well, my MSSP is fine, the only problem is that I had to hire an intern to delete all their alerts. And it was like, Wait a second. So you're paying them probably a lot of money to send you alerts, but then you have to hire an intern to delete alerts. That's a little illogical. So how are you really thinking about risks here? So to me, that struck me as, wait a second, something is very broken in the MSS land as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and... You know, you could you could say it's a depressing take, but I think years <laughs> of experience have created me a cynic, right? You know, was, and, and there are some that do it. The problem is the race to the bottom is like, how do you evaluate all of these vendors? Usually it's cost. And there's a reason why some are cheaper than others. Uh, correct. And this was, uh, I, I got into a fight with somebody over that topic. Uh, and I was trying to judge the quality of MSSPs and MDRs, of course, from the outside. 
And then uh, somebody pointed out that for customers who really need MSSPs are the customers who cannot judge their quality. So it really placed a lot of burden on me as an analyst because I felt like I really have to help them because people who most need help are the least able to get it. Uh, if, if, you don't, if you've never seen a good sock, you would see pictures of a sock of your prospect MSSP. And you'd think, wow, beautiful displays. I mean, what would you judge? How would you, if you've never seen a good, well-oiled security operations DNR team, how would you judge that your MSS has that? You mean the size and quantity of flat screen monitors on the wall is not a good metric? Uh, the cost is, right? It's the expensive monitor guy wins. I think that's the, the real thing, right? 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 Yeah. So um, to kind of pivot back, you know, is, you know, we're getting all this data, all this data is being generated. You know, why is it important to kind of look across data elements across the entire infrastructure? So not just on-prem event logs or syslog or IDS network logs. You know, what about hybrid cloud events? You know, why, why look across all of that and have it in one place? Mm, yeah, that's what is, is a difficult one, right? <laughs> Not sure I have any, any pithy comments to this one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So I guess the, to go more quickly to your last point, you know, what, what's the ideal threat re research and intelligence state to reach? You know, we make reference to, we don't know, you know, the, the people who don't know that they need help or don't know how to judge what a good and a bad sock is, you know, what does a good threat research and intelligence, you know, unit look like, you know, what's the state to reach? What's, what's success? Are you talking about actual threat research, which is frankly less of my area of expertise, or you're talking more of the hard, the core detection response team? Because uh, frankly, you should probably ask somebody from Indian how to build the ideal threat research mm -hmm. operation, because I felt felt like they pretty much did that. But it's yeah. also uh, an incredibly costly endeavor to be focused on enough threat actors to be in region for some threats to be kind of close to where the threat actors are. To me, this is not really my area. So I probably isn't a good judge of who has the best uh, intelligence operation. And you don't want me to just sound like an ad for Mandiant, even though I believe that they do have that. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so what changes are you seeing around SOAR and UEBA that, that's coming back now, right? You know, you mentioned that UEBA is, you know, an acronym from roughly a decade ago. You know, you're seeing changes in there, and certainly SOAR is, is something that's emerged in the past few years as pre-pandemic, so like the sense mm -hmm. of time is warped, you know, but, you know, <laughs> what, what changes are you seeing now, uh, certainly as, uh, you know, Google Cloud is acquiring, you know, a SOAR, has acquired a SOAR company and, and putting pieces together? So I think they, let's deal with Yuba first, because to me, I was at Gartner when Yuba was born. It was literally being cooked uh, kind of next to where I was sitting. And uh, we had a bunch of debates about the names and stuff like that. And to me, when I was observing the first Yuba, first without any, and then your EBA vendors being born, I kind of thought, wait a second, these people, these vendors only exist because the SIM vendors have slept through the anomaly detection and machine learning revolution. They tried some of the things that were anomaly detection focused, they didn't work too well, and they kind of said, okay, we're gonna go write better rules. But ultimately the Yubas found problems that worked well with ML, all this identity stuff, all the provisioning and anomalies within identities. And ultimately Yubas built decent businesses uh, before the very natural thing happened. Yuba and Sim merged. Right At this point, if you wake me up at 3 a.m. and says, Anton, name the top three Yuba vendors, I would say, well, wait a second, what do you mean? You mean the top three SIM vendors, right? Because there is no top three Yuba vendors, just like there are no bottom three Yuba vendors. There aren't any Yuba vendors. <laughs> Yuba is a functionality of a SIM. And startups mm -hmm. who were, well, startups first and became mid-sized vendors who built the most impressive Yuba capabilities, are now fairly impressive SIM vendors. 
and some of the same vendors mm. build decent Yuba capabilities, but ultimately it's the same thing. Right now, there's no pe- nobody's buying Yuba standalone. I mean, you can still do it, right? You, if you like your sim, and if you like Yuba from some other vendor, you can do it. A bunch of duct tape and stuff together, and things would mostly work, I guess. But ultimately, Yuba is sim. Sim is Yuba. That's the same tech. Um, Soar is a little interesting because ultimately, Soar was born out of automating things. And some of the things involved SIM, and some of the things did not involve SIM. So the very first SIM SOAR vendor, I would probably say Phantom, circa 2013, maybe, roughly when they were born, uh, really was building an automation platform for people who know how to automate. In, in practice, much of that automation involved things that are out, outputted by SIM. So mm-hmm. to me, SOAR started kind of also be on a collision course with SIM. Just like Yuba, um, I found my Gartner blog post from 2016 when I said, Yuba and SIM? Nah, they're the same thing. It, it's going to happen. And obviously it did. SOAR is interesting because a lot of people started saying, yeah, SOAR is going to disappear inside SIM. And it almost happened, but it didn't. Right now, my gut feel. I don't have data anymore. I'm not an analyst. My gut feel is very few people are buying SOAR without also buying a SIM or upgrading a SIM. So ultimately, you want to buy a SOAR from your SIM vendor. However, that rule has exceptions because uh, last year, uh, a very a new batch of SOAR vendors got launched and they're not affiliated with SIMs. I don't know how we feel about the company names on, on, the, web, on the webcast and podcast, but uh, you can look up uh, to some of some of the recent SOAR vendors. Both of them start with a T, right, for some reason. And the point is that now there's again a standalone SOAR and people are buying it and people seem to like it. So I think that we should hold on with the prediction that SOAR is going to collapse inside the SIM. Uh, it kind of almost did, but it then was reborn as a standalone tech. So at this point, I'm not sure. I think that if you wake me up at 3 a.m., and you ask, Anton, I need a SOAR. I would say, call your SIM vendor, see what they have. To me, that would still be the first reaction, but mm-hmm. I don't want to force people into that decision because ultimately there are examples of people buying SOAR for reasons that have nothing to do with detection and response. They may buy SOAR to automate other parts, vulnerability management, um, some other process, part of identity machinery. Basically, if your SOAR use case, your primary SOAR use case has nothing to do with detection and response, maybe you shouldn't buy a SOAR from your SIM vendor. Maybe you should buy the best SOAR you like. So to me, mm-hmm. this is a little tricky and I'm giving you uh, maybe a strong it depends vibe. Uh, the default choice for people should still be buy a, buy a SOAR from SIM vendor. So if you are using Chronicle, you should probably get Simplify. I mean, Simplify is now called Chronicle Source. So if you like Chronicle, you should still buy Chronicle. (laughs) The the point is, uh, for some other uh, companies, you do need to consider what your SIM vendor sells. But uh, yeah, there are other options as well. Gotcha. So to kind of pivot back to the the, the detection use case, right, is is what do you view as detection engineering, why do people need that, right? Of, you know, should it be out of the box or should organizations really have at least the larger organizations who could staff that kind of function? You know, should they have people writing detections in-house or it should be really something that people push this off onto the vendors to say, hey, you need to give me stuff that works. So let me, um, this is actually a very fun discussion and let me start from a somewhat strange and somewhat contrarian point. So. I've met people who think detection engineering is really cool. I think detection engineering is really cool too. So I am in that sense, one of those people. But I also meet people who hear detection engineering and they say, but I don't want to engineer. I just want good detection. I I don't have engineers. I'm not an engineer. I don't care to pay for engineers. I want the detections to happen. If they happen magically, fine. I want them to happen by magic. I want detection magic. I don't want detection engineering. And, and to which you ask, well, well, how would they happen specifically? Do you plan to outsource? Do you plan to rely on the, your detection or SIM vendor out of the box content? You would push a DR or something. Uh, the point is that they don't really care. They want detection to be good and they don't want to engineer it. So 
to me, I still say that somebody would have to engineer the detections. You know, they won't happen by magic. There is no wave the wand detection. But um, this discussion um, gave birth to a somewhat fun blog that I wrote that's called Detection is Cooking. And, and the reason this I'm bringing this up is that in this blog, two positions kind of collide. Some people say, hey, I want to go to the store and buy a frozen dinner, stick it in a microwave, microwave it, and consume it. Would I get the best food? No. But I don't want to spend time. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the decision capacity to decide. I just want to go pick the decent frozen dinner and buy it and eat it. To which other people say, no, you need to go to the French chef school, spend five years there, and then find the best way to cook the best French dinner possible at home. And that's great. But it's very likely different people from the people from, from example A. So ultimately, um, as you'd see if you read the blog, uh, it started as a fairly heated conversation at lunch <laughs> over which camp was right. And ultimately, we said, nobody's right. B both camps are right. There are absolutely people who don't want to see the detections. They don't want to engineer it. Frankly, they don't even want to see what's inside. They just want threats to be detected and code it in. And for them, somebody else is engineering. As we know, detections aren't born by magic. Even with ML, they're not magic. Somebody somewhere would have to engineer them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are people who want to engineer that themselves, who would want to study threats, understand what elements of a threat can be turned into rules, how these rules can be written, how uh, machine learning or other algorithms models can be tied in, and then they have the absolute best detection for their circumstances. That's absolutely right. But people who don't want to do this are also kind of right. So to me, it's almost like detection engineering is a great field. It's a very fun field. It's a very modern field. And yes, you would see people who, have, who want to have absolutely nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you know, there, there, there's a wide variety of viewpoints and it's usually a business driver, right? Is, you know, there's pros and cons of both approach, right? The pros, you can highly customize, localized, relevant stuff to catch the gaps of something general detections from somebody who's looking at threats all over the world would do. You know, the flip side is I don't got, the, you know, that's that's expensive. You don't hire somebody like me on the cheap and you don't get them just walking out of college with a bachelor's degree. Um, you know, there's just not that many of us uh, to, to do it, to do it well. Um, you know, there's some right. enterprises that I can that, that do do it well internally and just have it inside. And some are just I'm just going to outsource it, um, which is right. I don't know. It's, uh, choose your own adventure. It's choose your own adventure is probably the right call, but you're choosing based on fairly rational criteria. It may be the skills. It may be the team available. It may be something else. So it's almost like um, if you give the best motivational speech about how detection engineering is the awesomest thing to do on the planet, how it's the most fun, the most exciting, the most enriching thing to do, but you are giving it to somebody who has a security team of three, they probably would listen to you politely, but ultimately won't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. Then, then there's more of those organizations than those who are, I don't know that anyone would ever say they have got a fully funded security function, but we'll, we'll just say well-funded security function. And there's a lot of people that, that don't, right? And a lot of industry verticals, uh, you know, higher education comes to mind, right? Enormous footprint, very small security, security team. And I'm loathe to say security operations center because they don't really have that in any cognizable form. They just have a bunch of people who do a lot of different things and do their best with nothing. <laughs> yep. And then yet you can encounter people. I've, I've stepped into some debate uh, that people had here and uh, a, couple, a few years ago at this point, and people are debating whether detections are better be better written in Python or in Go. And I, I don't want to tell you what happened at the end, but ultimately people were discussing whether Python is better for detections or Go. This is fine. It's a fine debate to have, but the relevance of this to 
99% of the rest of the world is quite minimal. Chronicle, as you know, uses YARL. To me, YARL is a good approach and it's a good compromise between uh, being way too hard. Like, I don't know, writing mm -hmm. detection in SQL is, uh, is so painful. I, I don't want this on my worst enemies. Uh, but writing detections in YARL or writing detections in languages used by a few other vendors, uh, KQL comes to mind and even the SPL, uh, maybe a little more logical. I, I would take YARL, but is YARL the ideal approach? Probably not. The ideal approach for some people is to not to write detections or click on boxes as with uh, some of the older SIM vendors that had the visual rule designers that worked really well for certain clients. They didn't want the ultimate flexibility of a language. They wanted to have customized, slightly customized detections without learning anything. And that the same vendors, uh, like many years ago, gave them, gave that very thing to them. Mm -hmm. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we've kind of talked about ML approaches to, to threat detection, right? You know, and... I'll try not to answer this own question because among other things, I'm getting a PhD in cybersecurity machine learning. So I have some opinions on this question. You know, it's like, do we need data scientists for security operations, right? You know, do we need to start embedding those kind of people, you know, in the SOC to, to do and assist that kind of work for those organizations that will do it in-house? Yes, I think that the, the, there would be enough organizations to... Uh, who would need to benefit from it without applying the labor. And that means either products with a solid out-of-the-box detections. And that's a, right now, literally, as we are talking here, there's a massive debate on Twitter on that very topic. Uh, people arguing about the degree to which custom detections or out-of-the-box detections are valuable. I've, I've, uh, it actually started with me doing a poll. Uh, if you see a false positive, would you call your SIM vendor and complain or would you tune it? And to me, this debate reflects this very chasm. I think that if my detections are broken, I'm going to call SIM vendor and complain. Hey, you sent me, you shipped, you sold me a SIM and I enabled your rules and your rules are giving me false positives. I hate you. Fix it. So this is a reasonable course of action for some people, but other people say, well, yeah, sure, I got a SIM and I, they, they gave me detections, but these are more like templates. So I'm going to adjust them to my environment so that they deliver value, yet not produce false positives and don't miss signals. So to me, these are both reasonable. And yet to me, they're reflections of different camps and different mentalities of people uh, and how they approach detection. Now, if I pay you an MDR, for example, to, for detections, then and you give me false positives, I'm going to complain. <laughs> because ultimately I am paying humans to do it for me. So I probably wouldn't tune. If I'm doing MDR, the right decision is to call your MDR partner and say, hey, buddy, you're letting me down, fix it. But if I bought a product, then you have a choice. Uh, you, you're tuning, you're disabling, you're re rewriting detections, you're using your own detections, or you're complaining that they should work better. These are all viable routes, but they also reflect different philosophies, I guess, not in life, but <laughs> philosophies in threat detection. No, no, no and, that, and that's fair. So what do you think needs to change in how we do threat hunting and, and detection engineering uh, and threat detection? What should change or what does change? I mean, what's the, it may, may, this may not be the same exactly, right? Uh, well, what do you think needs to change, right? If somebody makes you the dictator of cybersecurity, Ooh, if such a possible okay. thing could really ever <laughs> exist for an industry filled with people who are more contrarian than the general population. Okay, so uh, I'll start with the story first. So um, I was arguing about something and I said uh, in the past, historically, I would do a Twitter poll to resolve some arguments. And right now I just go and ask Bard. So I said, okay, I'm gonna go find a random paper about security from 10 years ago that has log samples. And I'm gonna copy those log samples from the paper and paste them into Bard and say, Bard, what do these logs indicate? Should I worry? And the person said, 
no way that's going to work. There's absolutely no way without any context you would get value. And of course, because these logs come from a paper, there would be some narrative uh, explaining what they are. So mm -hmm. without having any preconceived notions, I go Google for a paper. I find some old sense reading room paper with a bunch of logs. I paste them into Bard and say, Bard, what's up with that? And Bard says, hmm, I think it's a scan. Somebody's trying to discover a vulnerable web app, at which point my mind is blown. <laughs> it really did highlight exactly what it was about. Now, you can say that probably Bard read that paper. And mm -hmm. because ultimately Bard kind of read all the papers, right? So what did we learn? Did we learn that quote unquote AI can solve all of our problems? Or did we solve that there's more to improve in the area of security operations? I think, I don't know, I'm not gonna call this one. But what should change is we would still treat all the innovations as, as, as tools and we're gonna use all of them. We're gonna use all of them. And if you are doing it on your own, you're gonna write rules, you're gonna do threat research, you're gonna use ML, you're gonna use modern AI, you're gonna use other things. And then there would be a spectrum of things to people who want to benefit from all that, but they can't do it themselves. So they would rely on a partner, on a good MDR, on a good, good firm with good engineers who can do all these things for you and you pay them and they do it for you and you work together with them. Uh, at Gartner, I call it joint ops to avoid the dreaded overt outsourcing. You're not outsourcing your SOC, you're jointly operating your SOC. So to me, the coherent fact-based discussion and coherent decision-making in this area is what's needed. If I wanna write my own tools, I can write my own tools. If I wanna use open source, I can use open source. If I wanna go and pay you money so that you solve these problems jointly with me, that's fine as well. But we should be kind of rational and smart about it rather than misplaced, rather than be powered by misplaced expectations. Like I'm gonna outsource detection. I'm just gonna give money to somebody, give them some logs and they would do everything. Well, they don't know your business. They don't know anything about you, what you care about. How, how can they really do everything if, they, if you don't even know, if you even don't know what everything is. So to me, my magic wand, the emperor, I don't know, maybe not. I, I think of myself as more of a DNR magician rather than a dictator maybe. So if I had the magic, I would basically have uh, people have a fact-based discussion and fact-based decision in this area. Can I really detect it myself? Yes, okay, I'm doing this. I can detect it here for my own business, but for this stuff, I'm gonna outsource. Okay, let's do that. Or not outsource rather, but work with a partner and then, for some people who don't know and they have no way of building this, they're gonna go and talk to the partner and partner would do more things. Uh, it doesn't sound very magical, but it's a pretty big change compared to the current state. Gotcha. No, I think that that makes a lot of uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, so kind of, you know, it, it, a somewhat related uh, uh, thought, right? Talking about, uh, we, we've mentioned automation and machine learning. It's like, mm -hmm. why is data analytics and automation important either to do in-house or to have somebody do on your behalf, right? To get beyond the human grep filter. Oof. That is tricky, right? It's... Uh... And again, I, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer here, right? The, the result is that the uh, the result is that ultimately for some organization, the answer is, you know, buy the right tool, get the right team. I don't know, it sounds very generic advice. And I guess Bart can give this advice at this point. I don't need they don't need Anton to give this advice. But ultimately that for that company, that's the right advice is that if you're doing it right, then there is a, you know, SOC optimization. We run the SOC transformation workshops and we can, you know, teach people how to optimize it. But for some other people, if they don't want to learn that, but they just want better results, ultimately it would be about the wallet and about enabling the partner. Gotcha. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so how is, is Google Chronicle uh, and, and the security offerings within Google Cloud, how is that helping customers uh, or MSSP partners transforming their end constituents' security operations? So I deal a lot with this, so I'm happy to give you a short uh, six-hour long answer. <laughs> uh, to be more serious, uh, it's interesting how one of the reasons why I fell in love with Chronicle back in 2019 when I joined Chronicle was that I realized that the 
Chronicle manifested a vision of a sim at the time. It wasn't a sim yet that I would sort of see in my dreams. I guess maybe that sounds too woo, but uh, the point is that it's fast, it's inexpensive, it it has all the right context, and it does allow you to not worry about some things that that a classic sim user would, would worry about. Like, do I have this data? Is this data enriched correctly? Is this data tied to DNS? Would I even know what this IP address is? So it's a SIM platform with better data, which is now also coupled with a better workflow coming from Simplify Chronicle SOAR. So to me, the stack we are assembling is quite amazing. And it's a stack that, of course, is delivered as software as a service. Um, from another blog um, that I've, I've written, I think, last year, I kind of said that pretty much nobody should buy an on-premise SIM nowadays. Uh, the SIM transition to the cloud was slower. Ultimately, you can buy software as a service-based vulnerability management uh, in the early 2000s. I think Qualys launched 20 plus years ago and it, it launched a SaaS. A SaaS SIM didn't arrive until much later, but at this point it did arrive. And you get to pick between various software as a service choices and never worry about like, oh no, my server is running out of log storage. I got to buy a hard drive. Like, come on. Go back to the right. 90s with these problems. No, today you don't need to do this. You're buying a software service SIM. You're paying cloud provider or some other vendor to store the data uh, as cost effectively as they can. And ultimately, you benefit from the effective stack. And ultimately, if you're searching logs, why do people accept that a log search would take 20 minutes? Like when Google searches the internet, you don't say, we don't say, Hey, your search, it, it touches a lot of the internet. It's going to be a while. Like Google never did this. Google in the 90s didn't do this. Uh, so why is this normal for logs? Searching the logs isn't any harder than searching the internet. So if you type something in Chronicle, you get the answer right away. That's really it. And if the answer requires us going back a year, then you're going to get an answer, go, us going back a year. So, so that to me is quite magical. And to me, the fact that you can type uh, an IP address or host name or something else, some other artifact in Chronicle, and you will get an answer that says, oh, yeah, this IP address was this machine, and it did these things, and then EDR and this machine did this, and it happened in July last year, and you'd get it in less than a second. To me, that's magic, and I haven't seen it anywhere else. Oh, obviously, well, you can see that, that I remain a very passionate Chronicle advocate. <laughs> well, no, that, 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 that's fine, right? You know, why... Why is it important to have scale and and time efficiencies and these optimizing processes, right? You know, uh, you know. I think I was talking to a previous guest of of what we used to call coffee queries, right? You know, we type yes. in a query, go get a cup of coffee, come back in five minutes. Why are you taking my coffee break away? Besides that, I'm getting to that age where I need to tone down the amount of coffee I drink. I think coffee queries uh, is, a, is a meme that goes back to the very first days of SIM. But of course, when I worked for my first SIM vendor, we occasionally had to take a vacation query, not just, uh, not just a coffee query, where you are not just taking a lunch break, you're taking maybe a, a skiing week weekend, and then the mm -hmm. query comes back, and then you realize that you searched for the wrong thing, or you tweaked some criteria, or you actually only searched two months of data, but you wanted to hit that third month. And for that, you had to tell the system, no, 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 only search data from July 15 to August 17. Otherwise, it's, not a, it's, it's gonna be a long vacation query, it's not a retirement query. So to me, coffee break queries uh, are, they just don't fit today's lifestyles, today's, people approaching things like I, I if i if i search i want to get an answer right away i don't want to wait and you can't do that in many other domains so why are you letting me wait for to get a coffee like i want my answer so i can tweak it i can interactively search think of a hunting use cases if you're doing a lot of query refinements you may refine your query 10 times before you get an answer then it's not a coffee break anymore that's a lunch break so if my query takes quarter of a second, I can refine it 10 times and you would still not have time to, to get a coffee. So to me, the speed here is not just like, hey, this other guy runs it in X minutes, we do it in X by half. No, being able to query the rep repositories going back a year in less than a second does create magic. And to me, that magic changes how I do things. 
not thinking about having to pay for all the data changes things, not having to think mm -hmm. about the retention period. Somebody told me uh, about some EDR vendor who said, you know, we can store seven days of data. And I said, wow, no way. You can store seven days of data. That's cool. And can you actually make it longer? And they said, yeah, we can make 30. 30 days of data. No way. Wow, this is amazing. Do you know the Chronicle defaults to a year and it doesn't cost you anything to store it for a year? And they were mm. like, no, that's impossible. But it is possible. You, you don't get to pay for volumes. You don't get to pay for retention time. And you have data stored for a year and the search is instant. That's still, I'm, I'm back to where's my vendor hat. <laughs> it's quite magical. So to yeah, me, speed changes. Speed is a huge qualitative difference. It's not a quantitative difference. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, to, to shift a little bit, right, you're talking about all this data. Are you seeing convergence of security, IT, AI ops operations? Uh, are you seeing that kind of convergence happen of those disciplines into a single organization or single data stores to, to do things? So this is an interesting one. And to me, this is uh, a question that a lot of people pondered maybe five, six years ago when certain vendors that focused on IT search were born, when they said, hey, don't buy a SIM, buy our search engine for all data, for IT, for troubleshooting, for development, for security. And that's fine. You can do that. Uh, do I think that we are in the convergence? I think that there would be people who need to have a single tool for IT and security, and there would be people who don't want a single tool for IT, for IT and security because they want the best tool for security, and they don't care what IT has. That's a little self-serving, but it's also kind of legitimate. If you are a SOC and you want the absolute best tool for a SOC, you may not choose to have the tool that's best for IT and can also help the SOC. So to me, this is, uh, I think it's a choice. I don't think it's an evolution devolution or evolution progress regress kind of thing. To me, it's a choice. If I need a single data store or data lake for IT data and security data, you can have that. People sell that to you or you can build it. I'd rather you not, but you can. And if you want a tool that focused mostly on security, you can get that or you can have a combination thereof. So to me, this is, these are all choices that people make based on their circumstances. I don't think that's the one source of truth in one place. Fair enough. Makes sense. So to, to wrap it up, right, you know, we've gone for a while now. Uh, it's one of our longer podcasts. What are the top three takeaway messages you have for the listeners today of the of insights that you think are important for them to uh, implement in their own workplaces? Okay. So... Uh, I would, my first one would be quite self-serving, and that would be that if you are buying or upgrading the SIM, you, are, you really should look only at software-as-a-service SIMs. You should not buy any of the on-premise stuff. Let it stay in the 90s. It's, uh, if you think you have some unique requirements because in your country, cloud is um, kind of sneered upon or you want people to rent data centers, ultimately be aware that you would be buying a typewriter in the age of computers. On-premise to me is it just a silly choice today and don't do that. So most of your security stack would shift to SaaS and the best tools would be SaaS tools, not on-premise tools. Uh, it, it, it may point you to Chronicle, but it may also point you at other competition that is ultimately the modern uh, SIM style tools that are all backended to cloud. They're not appliances or virtual appliances. They are cloud native tools. Now, on the practice side, I would say that ultimately tooling won't save you if you are not doing it, if you're not doing anything. Um, a lot of my work here focused on autonomic security operations, which is kind of a philosophy or a practice of changing your SOC, inspired by Google lessons, but not equivalent to what Google has done. So to me, the uh, certain activities and processes you do in your SOC would have to be morphed following the blueprint that's similar to what IT and DevOps, to, to what IT did with DevOps. Ultimately, in your SOC, you would look more like a DevOps team because ultimately SOC, oh, in SOC is operations, right? So in that sense, SOC is a similar function to an IT ops function in some philosophical way. But DevOps, 
merged I, development and operations. And ultimately, the future of SOC to me is that just such a merger. We call it ASOF, Autonomic Security Operations, as a kind of a branded approach we have. But the deeper truth is there. The deeper truth is you can't really ops your way to success in a SOC. You have to dev your way to success. And that's why I'm forcing or rather suggesting this revolution, following the lessons of DevOps teams to change your SOC and your DNR practice. And the third is, uh, okay, I guess I need to say something to AI and I would not. <laughs> I would say that the, the secret of success is probably in better using intelligence and better using uh, all the rich attacker information that many, many sources provide. Now, you may look at me and say, hey, but threat intel is so 2010. Sure, the, uh, I think Gartner built an intelligence-driven SOC vision probably around 2010, but ultimately I still see people who don't benefit from threat and tell either because their vendors don't help or because their intel is wrong or because they don't do the right thing. To me, if you have two choices and the choice is AI and TI, <laughs> artificial intelligence or threat intelligence, if you walk, wake me up at 3 a.m., which one of the pillars you would make use of? Ultimately, you want to use both eventually. Uh, probably robust threat intel would help you more today. Fair enough. Well, thank you for those insights. So that brings us uh, to the end of our podcast. You've been listening to the Net Rich Death Labs podcast, where we talk about all things threat research, threat detection. Uh, want to again thank you, Anton Shavakin, for joining us from Google Cloud, the office of the CISO. Uh, these episodes air every other Wednesday on all of your various podcasting platforms. So feel free to join in and subscribe. With that, I will bid you adieu. Thank you again, Anton, for joining us. Perfect. Thank you for inviting me.